0: Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13. We're almost finished with our study through this wonderful letter. In fact, we've got one more week after this morning. We'll come back next week to the very end there in these last few verses for the benediction and those final greetings. But for this morning, um, we come to chapter 13, verses 1 to 19, a long uh, passage of Scripture with much in it. So if you are able and willing, would you please stand in honor of the reading of the Word of God. This is the Word of the Lord. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body." Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life, and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more honestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me, please? Our God in heaven, indeed, this is your word, sharper than a double-edged sword. Would you now take it and meet it with your spirit in our hearts, that you might mold us and make us into the men, women, and children that you've called us to be. Our God, this is a long passage of scripture with much in it. We will barely scratch the surface of all the areas of which it might be applied to our life and faith. So, Lord, would you also give us wisdom that we might apply those things To our hearts and to our lives, so that we might live in a manner worthy of our calling. In my weakness, may your strength be made manifest. Teach us, we pray. Exalt the name of the living Christ, we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. Well, the high call of godly living, Uh, we might even call it kingdom living. And that's what we come to here in this last main section of the letter to the Hebrews. And all along throughout this letter, Jesus has been presented as better. He's better than the angels, he's better than Moses, he's better than Joshua. He's a better high priest. He's better than Aaron. He has a better priesthood. He is the better mediator of a better covenant. And so he's better than just, well, everything. That's been the argument. For the author of Hebrews. And, and so for the Hebrews then. The argument has been really clear. Hasn't it? The conclusion should be simple. And that is. Don't turn away from Christ. Because he's superior. Because he is better. If you turn away from Christ. You are turning away from the faith of your fathers. If you turn away from Christ. You are turning away from your only hope. Because it's only in Christ where salvation is found. And so then for us, for us, it's clear as well, isn't it? Or at least it sh- should be. Even though our temptation is, wouldn't be to return to Judaism, but our temptation is, we must admit, to turn to other things other than Christ, isn't it? But the conclusion still should be clear. Jesus is superior. Nothing And no one can provide what is provided in Christ Jesus. So don't turn away from Him. That's the argument. And it's really quite simple, isn't it? Whatever the temptation, whatever the persecution, whatever the struggle, cling to Christ, persevere, endure to the end. That's been the message of The letter to the Hebrews. Because why? Because we've got a lasting city. We've got a hope of the future. We have that city whose builder is the Lord. We've been reminded this is not our eternal home. There is something better in Christ Jesus. Even our home is better in Christ. And so you may wonder why I'm giving such a reminder here as we come to this last chapter. Why, Chris, why not just move right into the imperatives? Why not just move right into this section that teaches us how to live, that tells us what we're supposed to do? Why not just move right into that? Why remind us of all of this? Well, first, I do so to remind us that we live in response to what God has done for us. When we look at the scriptures, the imperatives always follow the indicatives. We don't live in such a way so that we might enter the kingdom of God. So that we might enter the kingdom, so that we might earn our way into the kingdom of God. No, we are called to live in such a way because we are members of the kingdom of God. And yet that's not the only reason why I remind us this morning. Remember these Hebrews, they were undergoing persecution from other Jews. They were undergoing persecution from the Romans. So they were were facing temptation from all different sorts of directions. And these imperatives, these commands, these instructions for kingdom living come within that particular context. You may say, well, what do you mean by that? Well, I think sometimes we view the Christian life or when we're reminded that this is not our home and that we are to look forward to that which is better, that which is to come, we think, okay, this isn't our home. we got something else out there, so we've just got to survive as Christians. For after all, we're called, right, to live um, in such a way that we are to endure and to persevere and sometimes I think we look at that as if we're just called to hunker down and somehow as Christians just make it to the end but I think what we see here is that that's not the call for the Christian it's not the call for the members of the kingdom of God for it's here in the midst of struggle in the midst of strife, in the midst of temptation, in the midst of persecution, even in the midst of suffering, that we are called to live as members of the kingdom of God. And here in our text, in chapter 13, the author of Hebrews says, and this is what that looks like. This is how you live as members of the kingdom of God. And this passage isn't a real easy passage to outline but I do want to give us some things to hang our hats on and maybe at least markers. So as we walk through this together, we're going to look at this in this way. We're going to look first to living before the face of God. That you'll find, We'll find that in verses 1 to 6. And then living by the word of God in view of the city of God in verses 7 to 14. And then finally living under the hand of God in verses 15 to 19. All right. So So knowing where we are, where we're going, let's go there. Living before the face of God. Let's look there first. And the author begins in a place where we might think he would begin. Because after all, love is that preeminent of Christian virtues. And so he begins, let brotherly love continue. And for after all, Jesus himself says, by... By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. To love one another and love for one another is to be a condition, an an ever-present condition within the life of the people of God. We are called to love the brethren. In fact, again, this is how others will know that we are disciples of Christ Jesus because we love one another. And so the question is, would they know that by our love? By the, by the way that we love one another within the body of Christ. I mean, we are called to love what God loves. And God loves his people. And so it's a fair question. Do, do we love the brethren? Do we have a love for the people of God? And how do we show it? What's it mean to love The brothers, our brothers and sisters. Well, we're not left to wonder, are we? Because the author doesn't allow us to think that this has to do with the way that we just feel about somebody or concerning another person. No, he he actually gives us concrete examples of showing love to our brothers and sisters. The first one he says is, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Well, and and think about his argument here. You certainly, you don't know strangers in such a way that you could say already, well, I really like them or I have feelings for them. And so that, that way I can love them. No, you don't know them yet. They're strangers to you. And yet hospitality is still a duty of believers. So sometimes it doesn't matter how we feel about them. Because hospitality is an expression of love. And for some, for some of you, that might be your gift. You have the gift of hospitality. But for the rest of us, it's still a duty, even if it's not a gift. And, and it's interesting, isn't it? Travel in the first century, it wasn't easy. It was difficult. It was often dangerous. So showing hospitality to travelers was an important aspect of body life. And, and so it's, it's not the same today, but principally speaking... It is. That is to say, while we might not show it in the same way, we, we still are called to practice hospitality. And isn't it interesting how we often say it that way? We are called to practice it. We're called to practice it because, not, because often, sometimes we're not good at it. We have to practice it. We have to practice to get, get, to get better at expressing our love for the brothers in this way. Opening our homes, opening our lives to those within the body of Christ. In fact, Paul... Says in First Thess 2, he says, "So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our own selves, because you had become very dear to us." Here is Paul, Silvanus, Titus, or or, or Timothy, excuse me. They loved the church in Thessalonica so dearly. That they desired to share with them their lives, not only the gospel, not only to share the truth, but also their very lives with them as well. That's genuine love for the body. And, and in doing so, he adds this, doesn't he? And in doing so, we may be entertaining angels unawares. And the point there is that, we, of course, that we, we, don't know, we don't know who we might be ministering to. There may be more going on than what meets the eye in a particular circumstance. We're called to practice hospitality. That's one way. Another way, the second way, objective way to love the brethren. Look what he says. He says, remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. Notice there, since you also are in the body. This is specific here. This is remembering those who are in prison for the sake of the gospel. And that's not to say that, that we, don't, we shouldn't be engaged in other prison ministries or whatever. That very well may be your call. But what this is saying is something different. It's saying, remember those who are in prison for the sake of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, who are suffering for the sake of the gospel. Those persecuted for standing for the faith. They're part of the body. And as part of the body, since they're part of the body, one, as one member grieves, so do we all. As one member suffers... Then we all suffer. As one member, even on the other side, rejoices, then we all rejoice with them. Those are expressions of love for the brethren. When one is hurting, do do we hurt with them? Do we come alongside them? Do we hurt with them? Or do we tell them to buck up or they're going to get left behind? When somebody rejoices, do we rejoice with them? Or... Do we envy their success and secretly despise them for it? The church is called to be different than the world around us. The world does that. The world turns their back on their own. The world despises those who rejoice. But we're called to be different as the church, we're called to love one another. And our view of marriage should be different as well. Listen to what he says. He says, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. I I think we sometimes think that we live in an era that is unique. Never before we would say, maybe, has a temptation for sexual immorality or attacks against marriage been so great. Well, it certainly may be different in some ways. But the situation in in the first century wasn't all that different from today. Sexual immorality was rampant in the first century. In fact, that's that's one of the reasons why hospitality was so important. Because traveling was dangerous. Not just because of the way people were treated along the road. But because for people to stay in an inn, Inns were notorious for sexual immorality. So for the body of Christ to come around and offer places to stay for those who were traveling was a way to protect them from that type of debauchery. The sanctity of marriage was attacked then even as it is today. But part of godly living is honoring marriage. God instituted marriage for His glory and for our good. We're called to honor it as He created it between one man and one woman and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. Don't let your marriage bed be defiled and don't defile it yourself by chasing your own pleasure. We're to uphold the institution of marriage. We we need godly healthy marriages. The children in the church They need to see and witness godly, healthy marriages. People of the world certainly need to see that. That's a a testimony. That's a witness from us. The world needs to see godly, healthy marriages from those within the life of the church. Men loving their wives, living with them in an understanding way. Women honoring and submitting to their husbands. For after all, God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. That's serious language, isn't it? That's how significant it is. And just as significant, he says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say the Lord's my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord's my helper. Not money, not wealth, not possessions. Christ is sufficient. Christ is better even than those things. Boy, we have a hard time believing that, don't we? The Lord is the one who said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Money doesn't do that. Possessions can't do that. Our our trust is placed in Christ Jesus, not in money. It's going to burn up. It can't protect you the way that the Lord does. It can't provide you what the Lord provides you with. And it is interesting, isn't it? When we read these, oftentimes we think money's the problem. Actually, money's not really the problem. Because rich, poor whatever, wherever we find ourselves on that spectrum. It's the love of money. A rich person can love money. A poor person can love money. A middle-of-the-road person can love money. The issue is the love of money. It's the worship of money. It's a form of idolatry. Placing your trust, your hope, your desires, your passions, your motivations... On something other than the Lord Himself. That's what the author's getting at here. I mean, money's a necessity. We earn it and we use it to provide for ourselves, for our families, and we're called to help provide for even for others, but don't expect it to save you. Don't expect it to do that which only the Lord Jesus can do. We're called to love Him and not money. And we're also called to live by the word of God. Not just before the face of God, but living by the word of God and in view of the city of God. He says, remember our leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. We are to remember our leaders. Consider their lives. Imitate their faith. And why are we to do that? Because, because they're, they're the ones that taught us the word of God. They ought to be living by that word of God that they have taught. So we can imitate them. We can follow them. We can, we can look back to those who have gone before us. Remember, this is, this is part of it for the author of Hebrews, isn't it? Look back to the great hall of faith. We can look back to those who have gone before. And, and we often, again, say things like, you know, so different back then. First century Hebrews, they, don't, they, didn't, they didn't have to deal with the things that I have to deal with. They didn't have social media. They didn't have friends at school that did this or did that. We often do that, don't we? I, I wonder if the first century Hebrews may have said, well, all those who came before us, they didn't have to deal with all the things that we have to now. They weren't persecuted because they were a nation state. We're now persecuted because we're out here. We've gone, as we're going to learn in a moment, outside the gate. And we have clinging to Jesus. And now we're, being suffered, now we're being persecuted. Those before Christ didn't have to deal with this. But look at us. We do. Don't you think they probably did the same thing as we do? But notice what the author says in response to that. He says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's almost like it's stuck right there in the middle of this passage, isn't it? Well, it is. It is stuck there right there in the middle of the passage. And it's there for a reason, for a purpose. Because if if our ministries, if our teaching, or even our faith, if it is ordered around experience, then everyone would have a right to say, well, you know, my life is different. My experience is different. So that doesn't really apply to me. But if all things are ordered around Jesus Christ, regardless of experience, then what remains? Truth remains, Christ remains. Because he is the same yesterday, today and forever. And that that word that remains, we're to know it, we're to live by it, we're to love it so that we're not led astray. And that's what he says next, isn't it? We're, We're not led astray by strange and diverse teachings. It's so that we're not distracted and tossed to and fro. We can recognize error for what it is. And he continues, he says, For it's good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. And then he says, We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. We read that and we might find that strange. We might find that difficult to understand, but it's simply this that in the first century, there were many, and and not just in the first century, but even before, that there were many feasts in Jewish religious life. And there were those that believed that they could be nourished spiritually simply by eating a physical meal, simply by eating a sacramental meal. That is to say that they, they believed that the meals themselves operated what we might call ex opera operato, meaning in and of themselves. All they had to do was eat it and they would gain something by it. But the author is saying, look, those foods didn't benefit those who were devo- devoted to them. And, and he is, he's contrasting that, that system with, with, with Christ Jesus. And, and he says, we have an altar from which those who serve the tent or the tabernacle have no right to eat. Now, I think we could, but I don't want us to get caught up in the weeds here with, with a contrast between the feasts of the old covenant with the Lord's Supper in the new covenant today. I'll mention this again when we come to the Lord's table in a moment. I do think there's a reality to that. But that's not the author's intent here or his main point. His main point is this, and it's fairly simple. His point is that spiritual strength doesn't come by what we eat or by simple ceremony. But it comes by grace through faith. That's his point. The point is, and what he's saying is, we have Christ. These people, they weren't nourished by eating that meal. We have Christ. That's where our spiritual nourishment comes from. And so too, brothers and sisters, we have Christ. And the author is pointing them and us to Christ Jesus. He, he's, he's pointing the early Hebrews to, to that which all the tabernacle ceremonies and all those things should have pointed to and did point to, did point to understood correctly, that even, even the, the sin sacrifice that was burned outside the camp. That was a picture of taking away of sins. And, then, and it was done outside the camp. And so therefore, Christ suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his blood. What's he doing? He's drawing people's minds away from those, that old covenant system to Jesus Christ. Christ is that final perfect sacrifice. It's his blood and his blood alone that takes away the sin of people. It's to him we go For forgiveness of sin, for salvation, again the author is doing what he's done all along. He's pointing us to Jesus. He's pointing us to Jesus, and so then as we flee to Christ, we flee from what was behind. Verse thirteen. Look at what he says: Therefore, let us go outside the camp and bear the reproach of uh, bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Isn't it interesting? particularly in their context what he's doing he's saying here's this city and all these things that are still taking place this isn't lasting in fact in fact had it it, it, looking forward it's about to be destroyed it's about to be destroyed it's not going to be lasting but there is something that is and it's christ and do we see the importance of it to our own lives you don't get to Christ by these physical aspects, by these foods, by these traditions, by even the temple system. They, for them, they pointed to Christ, but he has come. So what's he say to them? He says, go outside the camp. Go outside the camp of Judaism. Uh, you've, you've got to leave that behind because it's emptiness. Yes, you go outside the camp, you're going to be persecuted. You may even suffer disgrace, but there you'll find Christ. There you'll find Christ. Salvation doesn't come outside of the disgrace of the cross of Jesus Christ. It's a stumbling block to the Jews. It's folly to the Gentiles. But there is no way to salvation but outside the gates with Jesus. That's it. There's no salvation apart from the disgrace of the cross. And so think about the application for us then. You may have to leave what is comfortable you may have to leave what is acceptable in the culture and flee to Christ you may have to be different than the world around you after all you're called to be different than the world around you but there you may have to make those decisions you may have to flee from those things and flee to Christ these treasures that suppose the supposed benefits Of within the camp or even within the world, they are far outweighed by Christ. You young people, I know you struggle to believe that now. But what the world offers you is nothing but a vapor and a wind and maybe temporary what we might say pleasure. But there is no lasting joy and it is emptiness. But not in Christ. Not in Christ. All the treasures of this city are not lasting. And because they're not lasting, then we may leave it for something better for that city which is to come. But again, yes, there's that city which is to come, but we still live here, don't we? Looking ahead to that city. We live in that tension of the already and not yet living under the hand of God. Notice what he says. He says, through him then, through him, just another reminder, through Christ, because he's the only one in whom we may do this, not through Old Testament system or Old Covenant system, not through the things of this world, but only through Christ. Let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. What, what we do of a Sunday morning, what we do is we live our lives is to be done in grateful response to what Christ has done on our behalf. And what has He done on our behalf? Well, he's done a lot of things but the, where are drawing our minds to here is He suffered for us. He suffered on our behalf. He says, therefore Jesus also that He might sanctify the people through His own blood suffered outside the gate. Christ gave Himself for you For sinners like you and like me, as an atonement for sin, that you and I no longer stand condemned before the all-powerful, just, and righteous God. No longer condemned, but we stand justified because of Christ Jesus and in his name. Let that sink in, and when we let it sink in, and when we appreciate it for what it is and for what it means, then how do we respond? We respond in praise. We respond in praise. We praise his name. The fruit of our lips. But notice what he says next. He says, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Yes, we are to sacrifice with the fruit of our lips. Yes. But we are not only to sacrifice with our lips. But also in action and in deed. John says it this way in 1 John chapter 3 little children, let us not love with uh, word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. We're, we're not to neglect doing good, we're not to neglect sharing, for with this God is pleased, and, and, and to do so. And this is why this is all connected. If we love money, we're not doing this. We're not sharing. We're not doing good because we've, we've got to hang on to that because we put our trust in it and we're not free to let go of it. To love is to sacrifice. Whether it be material possessions or with our money. And, and that... That is a measure of our heart, hearts, isn't it? Couldn't it be? Couldn't that show us where our hearts are of what we do with our possessions and with our money? What we're trusting in? What our hope is in? What we really think is important? And it may not be just money and possessions. It may be with our standing. Are we willing to sacrifice our standing in the community because we're standing firm in the gospel of the Lord Jesus? It could be with whatever. Sometimes it's th- this call is difficult to love one another. Sometimes it's hard to love one another. But we are called to be different than the world, aren't we? Do we want to be different than the world? Do we believe the Word of God? If we do, then then let us put feet on our beliefs and allow them to take us where God calls us. Because God calls us to do good and to share what we have with others within the body of Christ. And I know that's often convicting, isn't it? But he's not done yet. There's more. And learning to submit to the leaders who watch over your souls. That's where he moves next. Part of kingdom living. Alexander Strauch, he, in, in a, he, he says only when believers properly submit to their spiritual leaders does the local church have any chance to be the growing, loving, joyous family God intends it to be. Obey your leaders and submit to them, he says. We often view submission in a negative way, don't we? We've talked about this before. Whether it be wives submitting to husbands, congregations submitting to their elders within the life of the church, pastors submitting to their presbyteries, we just struggle with submission. And in, in fact, you know, it's a lot like patience. We, we say things like, I'm a very patient person and, until actually we have to exhibit patience. And then we realize we're not patience, patient at all. We also say things like, I I submit fine. I submit really, really well as long as I agree with what they tell me to do. That's not submission. It's agreement. And so we struggle with this. But notice, God never gives us commands simply for the sake of seeing how much we can take. God gives us commands because he loves us. God gives us commands because he knows what's good for us. That's why he does that. And notice he says four. So in other words, here's the reason. They are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let me read that one more time. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. This ought to cause every elder or leader in the church to drop to his knees and to pray for God's wisdom, strength, and his mercy. And it ought to cause every member of the church to drop to his or her knees and pray for the elders of the church. This is why the, one of the reasons why the author of Hebrews says in verse 18, pray for us. Because it is these men who will give account. We're going to be opening nominations in the next um, little bit, next couple of weeks. Uh, I think at the beginning of December, I said December, uh, beginning of January, the last service, but I was corrected afterward. I think it's beginning of December. We're going to be opening nominations for elders and deacons. And let me just take the opportunity to say this, these are the kind of men that we want to nominate. It's not a, it's not a popularity contest. It's not the best businessman among us. It's not the most wealthy among us. But it's the one who's going to care for the souls Of God's people, and who meet the qualifications of Timothy and Titus. That's the kind of man we nominate for spiritual office. And and notice, I've been using the plural here because the Scripture itself uses the plural. It's not, it's not the leader; it's leaders. He's speaking of under shepherds, those called by God. There is only one head. It's not the pastor; it is Christ. It's Christ as the head. But there's a plurality of those called as under shepherds of Christ. And it's them who are keeping watch over your souls. The elders do what they do because they care for your souls. We desire that you be right before God. That's our call. It's our desire. And our passion should be our passion. And and notice one of the things of which they're supposed to keep watch of Look back to verse 9. Do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings. It's the role of the elder to watch for the spiritual well-being of those under his care by being sure and careful of the doctrine taught. This is the, this, in fact, this is the main thing that this points to. The role of the elder in the proper instruction in the word of God. The elder is to be wide awake and alert to any spiritual error that might creep in or might have crept in to the life of the church. Why? Because brothers and sisters, doctrine makes a difference in our lives. And so it's the elder's desire and function to maintain the integrity of the gospel of Jesus Christ So that your focus, our focus as a church may be on Christ and no other. And then then notice what he says. He says, let them do this with joy and not with groaning. For that would be of no advantage to you. You have a part in this, don't you? You have a part in this. Let them do it with joy. Don't kick against the goads as it were. Don't kick against the word of God when it's faithfully given respond to the elders by embracing right doctrine by embracing the word of God value the church here's a just a very practical way to do this value the church and the integrity of the word of God more than you value relationships with people who don't even believe the gospel of the Lord Jesus value the counsel you receive from those men who love you and who stand and who will give account who will give account For the shepherding of your souls, value their instruction and counsel more than you do a podcast or a famous preacher out there. They're not held to the same account. Accept the word of God through them. And again, pray for them. Pray for them. We acknowledge that apart from the Lord, we are hopeless and we are helpless. We all are. We stand in need of Him. Your elders stand in need of Him. So pray for them. Pray for your deacons. Pray for those who serve in your midst. And let's pray for one another. Let's love one another by raising each other up to the Lord. Pray that all we do as a church, whether it's in our worship... Whether it's in our doing good or in our sharing, and our submitting, in our testimony to others, in our witnessing. And all we do, pray that we are exalting the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and promoting the gospel of Christ. Not ourselves, but Christ. That great news that we as the church have been given to declare. That Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God has come and died. He's paid for the debt of sinners like you and like me. And he's been raised for our justification. And he now sits at God's right hand, interceding even now on our behalf. And because of all of that, that he deserves our worship and our praise. For he is the king and head of his church. Let's pray, shall we? God in heaven, we thank you for this passage of scripture and this word from you would you indeed may may it take root in our hearts and may it change the way that we live and think and believe and breathe may we respond with praise Lord may we be the men, women and children you've called us to be we thank you for Jesus and it's in his name we pray Amen